Welcome to Murder Minute. On today's episode, the Starkweather murders. But first, your true crime headlines. A Michigan man who spent nearly five years in custody is suing a car rental company for failing to produce in a timely manner a receipt that would have proved his innocence long before he was convicted of a 2011 murder. The evidence wasn't obtained from Hertz until 2018, which led to Herbert Alford's exoneration in Ingham County last year. Attorney Jamie White said, quote, there is no question that Alford would have avoided going to prison had they produced this documentation. Hertz said it's deeply saddened about what happened to Alford. Spokeswoman Lauren Luster said Wednesday, quote, While we were unable to find the historic rental record from 2011 when it was requested in 2015, we continued our good faith efforts to locate it. With advances in data search in the years following, we were able to locate the rental record in 2018 and promptly provided it. Alford was convicted of second-degree murder in 2016 in the shooting death of Michael Adams. The Hertz receipt showed that Alford was renting a car at a Lansing area airport at the time that Adams was shot. Adams was killed in a Lansing neighborhood 20 minutes away from the airport. In 2020, the conviction was thrown out and charges were finally dropped after Alford had served nearly five years in prison. Alford filed a lawsuit against Hertz on Tuesday, although the case is expected to be slowed by the company's bankruptcy reorganization. He is seeking financial compensation. A St. Louis-area woman accused of starving her two-month-old son to death has been sentenced to five years in prison. 27-year-old Michaela Hill was sentenced Tuesday after she pleaded guilty to a reduced charge of child endangerment for the 2018 death of her infant son, Samuel Williamson Jr. Hill was given credit for more than two years of jail time already served. In exchange for her plea, prosecutors dropped a second-degree murder charge. In September of 2018, police were called to a hotel where Hill was living with the infant and a toddler. The baby was later pronounced dead at a hospital, and an autopsy showed the six-pound infant died of severe malnutrition. Authorities said Hill failed to feed the baby for about 12 hours before she found him unresponsive. Records show the baby had received treatment several times at St. Louis area hospitals prior to his death, with symptoms of being severely underweight and vomiting blood. Before accepting the plea agreement, Hill's lawyer had planned to have an expert witness testify that the baby had a rare congenital disorder that could have caused him to reject nourishment and not cry when hungry or thirsty. An Oklahoma man's murder convictions and death sentence have been overturned following a U.S. Supreme Court ruling that much of eastern Oklahoma remains an American Indian reservation. On Thursday, the Oklahoma Court of Criminal Appeals reversed the decisions against 38-year-old Sean Bossie because his crimes occurred on land 
within the Chickasaw Nation's historic reservation, and the victims were Native American. Bossy was convicted and sentenced to death in the 2010 killings of Katrina Griffin and her two young children. The victims were found inside a burning mobile home near Dibble, about 35 miles south of Oklahoma City. In a ruling last year known as the McGirt decision, the Supreme Court ruled 5-4 to four that Oklahoma prosecutors lack the authority to pursue criminal charges for crimes committed on tribal reservations in which the defendants or the victims are tribal citizens. In a separate case involving a Native American defendant, the state appeals court overturned the weapons and kidnapping convictions for a crime that took place within the historic boundaries of the Cherokee Nation. Bossie's case could now be retried in federal criminal court. Although federal prosecutors have the authority to pursue the death penalty under certain circumstances, if the killing is determined to have occurred on tribal lands, the tribal nation must also agree to allow the death penalty. Some Oklahoma-based tribes have indicated they're considering the option. Bossie's attorney, Michael Lieberman, expressed gratitude on behalf of his client, saying, quote, he's relieved to know his death sentence will be vacated. A California woman charged with murder after delivering a stillborn baby who tested positive for methamphetamine will be released to a drug treatment center as her lawyers argue that the state's homicide law does not apply to pregnant women, a position backed by California's Attorney General. 26-year-old Chelsea Becker has been in a Kings County jail since her arrest in November of 2019, unable to raise $2 million bail. This week, Kings County Superior Court Judge Robert Shane Burns granted her attorney's request to release her to an out-of-county residential treatment center pending trial. She has pleaded not guilty. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the Starkweather murders. But first, a quick break. Here at Murder Minute, we focus on the facts and skip the chit-chat. But sometimes, there's more to the story. Conflicting reports, rumors, theories, unverifiable witness accounts, and more. Now, you can join us live every Saturday as we dissect and discuss every detail during our weekly Murder Minute post-mortem, only on Stereo. Stereo is a free live broadcast social platform that enables people to have real conversations in real time. On Stereo, you can ask me questions about the case, tell me your theories, and even suggest stories for future episodes. Murder Minute is excited to offer you this killer new way to interact with us. Join us Saturdays at 3 p.m. Pacific for a live Murder Minute postmortem only on the Stereo app. Download the free Stereo app and select Murder Minute so that you can connect with us whenever we are live. Just go to Stereo.com slash Murder Minute to get started. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash Murder Minute. And stay tuned for more details on how to join us on Stereo at the end of today's episode.
Whether I'm taking a walk around my neighborhood, running errands, or venturing out on my own, I always want to feel safe. That's why I never leave the house without my birdie. Birdie is a personal safety alarm designed to be easy to carry and simple to use. When you activate your birdie with a quick pull, the alarm will emit a loud 130 decibel siren and a flashing strobe light to help deter an attack. Unlike pepper spray or other deterrents, Birdie is no danger to you. Birdie goes wherever you go. The alarm comes in multiple colors and has a brass keychain so that you can attach it to your keys or your bag. I have one birdie on my keys, one in my apartment, and one in the car. And I'm giving a birdie to every woman I know. Over 300,000 birdie alarms have already been sold, and they have thousands of five-star reviews. Join the flock today for a safer tomorrow. Right now, She's Birdie is offering our listeners 15% off your first purchase when you go to she'sbirdie.com slash murderminute. That's She's Birdie, spelled S-H-E-S-B-I-R-D-I-E dot com slash murderminute for 15% off. That's she'sbirdie.com slash murderminute. My cat is my best friend, and these days, we've been spending a lot more time at home together. And as much as I love her, I'm not fond of the stink bombs she leaves in her litter box. Everything from cleaning to covering up the smell is a constant battle. That's why I use Pretty Litter. Pretty Litter is kitty litter reinvented. Unlike traditional litter, Pretty Litter's super light crystals trap odor and release moisture, resulting in dry, low-maintenance litter that doesn't smell. And Pretty Litter is virtually dust-free because it's manufactured with a specialized de-dusting process. Less dust and no fuss. And Pretty Litter arrives safely at my door in a small lightweight bag that lasts up to a month. Perfect while we're social distancing. Now that I get litter bags auto-shipped, I don't have to deal with last-minute trips to the store. And shipping is free. But above all else, Pretty Litter is this pet parent's hero because it's a health indicator. Pretty Litter monitors my fur baby's health by changing colors when it detects potential underlying issues. You won't find that kind of innovation in conventional litter. Get the world's smartest litter without leaving home by visiting prettylitter.com and use the promo code MURDERMINUTE for 20% off your first order. That's prettylitter.com promo code MURDERMINUTE for 20% off. What are you waiting for? Get it right meow at prettylitter.com promo code MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Charles Starkweather was born on November 24, 1938, in Lincoln, Nebraska. The third child of seven children, of Guy and Helen Starkweather, Charles was born during the Great Depression and had a poor, working-class upbringing. The Starkweathers, by all accounts, worked hard to support their family, 
but were attentive parents to their children, who were considered well-behaved by the community. When Guy, who was a carpenter by trade, went through bouts of unemployment due to his back pain and crippling rheumatoid arthritis, Helen worked as a waitress to make ends meet. But the children never went hungry. Those who knew the family described Guy as a handsome and talkative man who was better suited for white-collar work than the carpenter's trade that he had chosen. His wife, Helen, a small woman with frizzy red hair, was strong and kind, they said, the one who held things together. But while Charles had a happy and stable home life, school was another story. Charles was born with genu verum, a slight birth defect which caused him to be bow-legged. He also wore thick glasses and had a speech impediment. The other children at Saratoga Elementary School bullied him relentlessly. The teasing didn't stop until he threatened them with a pocket knife. As he grew older, and stronger, he found a physical outlet for his rage in gym class, the only subject that he excelled at. He then became a bully himself. He could be the kindest person you've ever seen. He'd do anything for you if he liked you, high school friend Bob Von Bush would later recall. He was a hell of a lot of fun to be around, too. Everything was just one big joke to him, but he had this other side. He could be mean as hell, cruel. If he saw some poor guy on the street who was bigger than he was, better looking or better dressed, he'd try to take the poor bastard down to his size. In 1955, Charles and Bob watched the film Rebel Without a Cause, and Charles became obsessed with James Dean. He cut his hair like him, slicked it with black shoe polish, adopted his mannerisms, and started wearing a leather jacket, blue jeans, and white cowboy boots. In his senior year, Charles dropped out of Lincoln High School and found work at a local newspaper warehouse near Whittier Junior High School. It was there that 18-year-old Charles Starkweather would meet 13-year-old Carol Ann Fugate in 1956. The two were introduced by Charles's ex, Barbara, who was Carol's older sister. Charles began to visit Carol every day after school. Barbara was now dating Charles's friend Bob, and the four of them would go on double dates. Charles and Carol grew close, and although the age of consent in the state was 16, the 18-year-old began a relationship with the girl. To Carol's 13-year-old eyes, Charles seemed very cool and grown up. He liked himself in her eyes. Carol's parents didn't approve, and soon Charles's didn't either. When Charles tried to teach Carol how to drive, and Carol crashed his father's 1949 Ford into another car 
Charles was kicked out of his parents' house. He then left his job at the newspaper, rented a room, and took a minimum wage job as a garbage collector. Sometimes you'd have to tell him something two or three times, his employer at the newspaper later recalled. Of all the employees in the warehouse, he was the dumbest man we had. Charles's behavior as a garbage man was no better. Now believing the world was against him, Charles became convinced that the only way out of his situation was a life of crime. During garbage pickups, he'd stake out houses to burglarize. Before long, he was fired for laziness. Then, he was evicted. On the night of November 30th, 1957, Charles Starkweather reached his breaking point. He walked into a local gas station and tried to purchase a stuffed animal for Carol on credit. When the young attendant, 21-year-old Robert Colvert, refused, Charles robbed him at gunpoint, taking $100. He then took Robert out into the woods and shot him in the head. On January 21, 1958, Charles went to call on Carol at her family's home. He was met by her mother, 36-year-old Velda, and her stepfather, 57-year-old Marion Bartlett. Charles had been telling lies that Carol was pregnant and that the two were getting married. Carol's parents told him to stay away from their daughter. In response, Charles shot them both in the head. He then strangled and stabbed their two-year-old daughter, Betty Jean, and dragged the bodies behind the house. According to Carol, when she got home from school, Charles was waiting with a gun. He told her that her family was being held hostage, and if she didn't do what he said, he would kill them. For a few days, the two stayed in her family's house. On at least two occasions, relatives came by to find out why nobody from the family had been seen. Carol turned them away at the door, telling them that everyone was sick in bed with flu. On January 27th, Carol's grandmother would finally alert the police. But it was too late. When they arrived at the house, they found a sign in the front window. It read, Stay away. Everybody is sick with flu. Miss Bartlett. But the house was empty. And a search of the property revealed the bodies of the family. All except 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate. Charles and Carol had fled to a family friend's farmhouse, 70-year-old August Mayer. August often invited the Starkweathers out to his property to go hunting. Charles shot both him and his dog with a shotgun. When the couple fled, Charles drove the car into the mud and got stuck. Two teenagers, Robert Jensen and Carol King, stopped to give them a lift. Charles directed them to drive 
to an abandoned storm cellar in Bennett, where he shot Jensen in the back of the head. He then made an attempt at raping Carol King, but when he failed, he became angry with her and shot her as well. Leaving their bodies in the storm cellar, Charles and Carol fled in Jensen's car. Their next destination was a wealthy neighborhood in Lincoln, where they entered the home of industrialist 47-year-old C. Lauer Ward. After stabbing his maid, Lillian Fensel, to death, Charles broke the family dog's neck to silence it. The couple then waited for Ward and his wife to come home. Clara Ward arrived first, and Charles stabbed her to death. Mr. Ward came home later that evening. Charles shot him, the couple robbed the house, and the two fled Nebraska in Ward's black 1956 Packard. By now, the law was after them, and several sightings of the couple had been reported. Realizing that they would need a new vehicle, when the couple spotted a traveling salesman, 37-year-old Merle Collison, sleeping in his Buick along the highway outside of Douglas, Wyoming, they pulled over. Charles woke the man, shot him dead, got into his car, and hurried back on the road. But Collison's Buick had a parking brake mechanism that was unfamiliar to Charles Starkweather. As he drove away, the car stalled, because the brake hadn't been released. A passing motorist, Joe Sprinkle, thinking the two cars may have been in an accident, stopped to offer his assistance. Can I help you? He asked Charles. Raise your hands, he responded. Help me release the emergency brake, or I'll kill you. When Sprinkles saw the dead man, he lunged at Charles, pulling him to the ground and wrestling away the rifle. As the men fought, Natrona County Sheriff's deputy, William Romer, arrived on the scene. The moment she saw him, Carol ran to the officer screaming for help and identified Charles Starkweather as the murderer. Charles sped off, leading three officers on a high-speed chase. When a shot fired by Sheriff Earl Heflin shattered his back window and cut his ear, Charles pulled over and surrendered. He thought he was bleeding to death, Sheriff Heflin said. That's why he stopped. That's the kind of yellow son of a bitch he is. On January 29, 1958, Charles Starkweather and Carol Ann Fugate were arrested and were soon extradited back to Nebraska. Charles seemed to enjoy the attention and his new notoriety. He posed for the cameras like a wannabe James Dean. At first, he told police that Carol Ann Fugate wasn't involved in the murders at all. She didn't have anything to do with it, he said. She tried to get away a couple of times. But later, 
he changed his story, calling her, quote, the most trigger-happy person I've ever met. Both faced charges of murder in separate trials. On May 5, 1958, Charles Starkweather sauntered into court. He was charged with one count of first-degree murder for Robert Jensen. Charles was persuaded to plead insanity, although he resisted the idea, telling his defense lawyer, quote, nobody remembers a crazy man. When his chief counsel told the court that Charles Starkweather's IQ was, quote, only a point or two above an idiot, Charles was visibly angry. The insanity defense failed. And on May 23, 1958, Charles Starkweather was found guilty and sentenced to death. He told his father, Guy, quote, If I want to make my atonement with God and be electrocuted, that's my business. Carol Ann Fugate's trial was next. Carol claimed that Charles had taken her hostage after she had tried to break up with him, that she went with him only because he had threatened to kill her family, and that she had killed none of the eleven victims. He threatened me by telling me that if I didn't do everything he said, that he would make one phone call and have his gang kill my family, and it would be my fault. She said. Sheriff Heflin, who arrested the couple in Wyoming, said that Carol was, quote, very nervous and upset and in a state of shock at the Douglas Jail and needed to be sedated. The next morning, he said, she, quote, cried and screamed for her mother, wondering why she couldn't call her parents. I don't think she knew that her folks were killed, Heflin said. When Nebraska authorities confirmed that her family was dead, Carol broke down, twisting tissues into tiny doll shapes. Sheriff Romer, however, testified that Carol had admitted to seeing her family killed. Heflin then said that when they arrested Carol, she had newspaper clippings in her pocket related to her family's murders. Charles testified against her, telling the jury that it was Carol who killed Carol King, Clara Ward, and Merle Collison, and that she had been present when her family was killed and was a willing participant. Though Carol Ann Fugate maintained her innocence and testified that she had been too afraid of Charles to run away, the judge ruled that she had plenty of opportunities to escape. And on November 21, 1958, 14-year-old Carol Ann Fugate was sentenced to life in prison. At the time, she was the youngest person in American history to be tried for first-degree murder. When Charles Starkweather was asked by a reporter why he killed all those people, Charles replied, quote, Well, I know you're going to put me in the electric chair, and I don't really care, 
because I'm going to be famous for all time, just like my idol, James Dean. And I'm looking forward to dying, so I can go to heaven and meet my idol, James Dean. I know I'm crazy. I know I'm a monster. And people, they look at me and they laugh at me and tell me how ugly and stupid I am all my life. And I'm looking forward of dying so I can go to heaven and meet my idol, James Dean. On June 25th, 1959, the state of Nebraska carried out its execution, sending Charles Starkweather to the electric chair. His father, Guy Starkweather, said that Carol Ann Fugate, quote, should have been sitting in his lap. In 1976, Carol Ann Fugate was paroled on good behavior after serving 18 years of her sentence in the Nebraska Correctional Center for Women. She became a nurse, married, and changed her name to Carol Ann Clare. In the 63 years since the Starkweather murders, his name and story has been immortalized in books, songs, and films. Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska is based on the story, and Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire references the Starkweather homicide. A 1993 miniseries, Murder in the Heartland, starring Tim Roth and Feruza Balk, was based on the murder spree, as were the Brad Pitt and Juliet Lewis film California, Oliver Stone's 1994 film Natural Born Killers, and Terrence Malick's 1973 film Badlands. In February of 2020, 76-year-old Carol Ann requested a pardon from the Nebraska Pardons Board. Her request read in part, quote, the idea that posterity has been made to believe that I knew about and or witnessed the death of my beloved family and left with Starkweather willingly on a murder spree is too much for me to bear anymore. Receiving a pardon may somehow alleviate this terrible burden. Her request was denied. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app or follow us on Instagram. Or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Stereo at Murder Minute. Join us this Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for our weekly Murder Minute postmortem. Hear more about the case. Tell us your theories, ask questions, and more. Only on Stereo. Stereo app users can engage with the platform to listen in, seek out topics, and join conversations about issues and ideas that interest you, like comedy, pop culture, lifestyle, sports, and of course, true crime. Stereo can be downloaded for free by Apple and Android users. Once you've downloaded the app, Create your avatar and profile so that you can send me audio messages in real time. Join us as we unpack the case live every Saturday at 3 p.m. Pacific. Our weekly Murder Minute postmortem is only on Stereo. 
Download Stereo free and get started at Stereo.com slash Murder Minute. That's S-T-E-R-E-O dot com slash Murder Minute.